Welcome to Householders, a conversation about American life as Zen practice. I'm Inga Annie Wade. And I'm Kyosaku John Mitchell, and we're lay members of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. I know that you just went through Jukai mm-hmm. uh, because I was there. I just wanted to know what made you want to do that mm. because you know it's not required mm-hmm. uh, as a lay practitioner. You never have to do it. Sure. So what made you want to do it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's also kind of surprising to me that I wanted to do it because for a few reasons. The formal sign of commitment to a religion that is... Uh, not the one that I was born into or that my household nominally practices is a little, was a little, felt like a little bit of a risky move. Of course, we can unpack a lot about the word religion as far as Zen in general and our Sangha in particular. Right. Of course, I ran this by my wife, who is a rabbi, uh, as I probably have covered, but we can't assume everyone knows. I ran it by her early in the process of thinking about it, and she never expressed any hesitation. It's probably because I framed Jukai mostly in terms of the Sangha, which I think is accurate. It's accurate. It's about pledging commitment to this community of people. And of course, it does involve taking the precepts, but there's nothing objectionable in any of the precepts to any moral person. Any religion could agree with those precepts i feel like right and like they correspond to jewish precepts so i think yeah i think everything's cool i mean what's interesting about the practice of jukai in the west as we do it is that the precepts have been split in half now the things that were originally monastic precepts there's now two stages and discipleship is the first one where you take precepts that have to do with buddhism right you know, there's stuff about the Sangha and, you know, disparaging the, the teachings. Yeah. Which is a little bit closer to the territory of Buddhism with a capital B kinds of rules or and, and rules. I mean, precepts, precepts are not rules, as we discuss in all kinds of ways. But the first five that you take in Jukai are just basic moral things, right? There's no objection from that standpoint. There, There is a lot of ceremony around it and a lot of bowing and things that might make some religious Jewish people uncomfortable in certain situations, but that's not how my family is. So, you know, we have, we, we sort of see all earthly forms of devotional practice as the symbols that they are, not real, metaphysically real, all-powerful religious things. So I always framed Jukai as just this signal of commitment to the practice that I'm doing, to the teacher that I'm learning with, and to this community of people, which by the time I got here, six, seven months into being a part of the Sangha, clearly had made a positive, a deeply positive impact on me and given me all this direction and purpose and support. Uh, And my family has noticed that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were happy to, I mean, they all came. My parents and my daughters and my wife came to the ceremony. And I was really honored by that. 
But as far as why I decided to to take Jukai, I mean, I I thought about it pretty early on in the process of getting to know this sangha, meeting people who had who were initiates in the sangha with dharma names and sort of roles in the community. You were one of the first ones. It seemed like a normal thing to do for people who stick around at this sangha from pretty early on for me. I, I think what's unique about your experience, in my opinion, is that you did it pretty early on. But I know that you have had some experience with like Rinzai and everything. So I don't know if that's played into it as well. Or I see what you mean. I've had a lot of off and on Zen practice in my life. To the extent that there is an intellectual component to, to Jukai, to initiation into Soto Zen, meaning that it involves a sort of basic amount of learning and understanding our school and what it teaches. I was there when I got here, which might be unusual. I'm not sure how unusual it is. From what I can tell, actually, there's a wide range of experience with Zen from people who show up. Like Amy, Moomon, Amy Pico showed up a month or two, no, less than than two after I did. Mm -hmm. And she came from another sangha in Illinois. And so she was in my Jukai class also. And she yeah. she was the only one who shaved her head for the ceremony, actually. I As soon as I saw her that day, I felt really bummed that I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I didn't know she did it for the ceremony. I thought it was just trendy. It's actually a lot of girls are shaving their heads right now. So I was like, right that looks cool. That's good. <laughs> I support everybody who wants to shave their head. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that she did it as, a, I mean, maybe she had already done it, but she certainly did it freshly for the ceremony that day. Right. It's fun, funnily enough, uh, Ariel, my wife, as soon as we saw her, said, you should have done that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get another chance, I'm sure. So, you know, she represents maybe the high end of the spectrum of previous Zen experience. And so her showing up and taking Jukai pretty quickly I think for her, it was mostly a probational period before that to see if her relationship with Sensei was good and she thought the Sangha was cool. And the level of practice was both high enough and not, you know, obsessively too high for her. And she felt it was. Yeah. And I think that everybody takes different journeys Mm -hmm. with Jukai. I think, you know, Ryan was there too. And I had known him since the beginning that I started going there and he had been going there before me. So... Uh, I don't know why he waited so long to do Jukai, but... Yeah, you know, I thought of that too when I saw him because he was the other person who I had ever seen before. And I always see him in the Zendo uh, on screen. He lives there. Yeah, and so like that's to me, to me, he was like one of the people I sort of thought of him as a as a senior to me in terms of belonging to the Sangha. And he is, of course, just in terms of time and being a resident. Uh, but the, you know, waiting to take Jukai did surprise me a little bit. I took it as a totally personal decision a- as to whether or not I was ready to do it. I had talked to Sensei about it a little bit. I talked about, this is probably worth bringing in. I talked to Sensei about my practice path fairly early on in our Dokusan meetings because I was talking about the role I've played in my wife's rabbinate. I've always wanted to find a way to bring my own practice and forms of practice into whatever Jewish religious community we're in and 
as my wife has increasingly become a teacher and leader, that has become more urgent for me because a rabbi's husband, well, I should say a rabbi's spouse has a role, a community role, a visible community role. Yeah. There's kind of really no separation between religious roles and community roles and Judaism, but a rabbi's spouse is a, is a religious figure in a way to the community that the rabbi is the rabbi of. Okay. I've always wanted to find a way to authentically bring my own practice to that. And for a while, while she was in rabbinical school, particularly while we were living in Israel for a year, which is a normal part of rabbinical school, I was working really, really, really hard to make my daily and personal practice just like thoroughly by the book Jewish practice so that I wouldn't stand out in any way as being a weirdo. And that was impossible for me. So first the sitting meditation came back and I wasn't calling it Zen practice out loud, you know, certainly not to anyone else. And I tried to find a way to make it a Jewish practice and use Jewish terminology. And there's a daily schedule of times to pray in Judaism. Yeah. So I tried to sort of hold to that schedule with my sitting practice for a while and make analogies between meditation and Jewish prayer. And this was going really well for a while to the point that I did a seven-day retreat with a Jewish organization in California. Overtly, it was a Jewish retreat. All the teachings were used Hebrew religious terminology and God was a concept that was assumed to be comfortable to talk about and people were wearing Jewish ritual implements and daily prayer was optional but supported and I was doing it uh, through the whole retreat but the thing was in every formal sense it was a Zen retreat a session structure sure and there was that much sitting and it was in silence and all of that and I had done that before. I actually hadn't done it for that long before, but I had done three or four day retreats. And this was a, like a, a seven, an eight night, seven day retreat. And it was profoundly moving to me. And probably arguably the thing that sort of started me back on the path toward formal Zen practice, because it, you know, like I said, basically was formal Zen practice. But the summer after that, at a camp, not, it's not really a camp. There's a program for young adults that uh, Ariel and I have have gone to for the summer as, well, she was, she was a teacher for two years, 2018 and 2019 summers. And in 2019, I taught meditation at this, at this, it's 20 to 29 year old participants. And I taught silent meditation. And I came up with this whole Jewish form using Jewish vocabulary but of course was still doing and teaching just sitting Zen meditation. That's so interesting. It wasn't easy for a lot of the participants, but a core of about 20 people stuck with me. And I found that to be, I was su positively surprised by the, by the numbers of people who were interested. And that proved to me that the practice that I was doing wasn't out of place at least in liberal American Jewish culture. 
and Israeli Jewish culture because there were Israelis in the program too. Was that scary for you to introduce this sort of new concept to the Jewish community, like knowing that it's kind of a part of a different religion altogether? A little bit, but that's why I worked so hard to come up with Jewish framing for everything. And I actually remember kind of being pressed by questioning into even mentioning Buddhism in order to explain some aspect of the meditation practice, some technical aspect, because there were just there just weren't Jewish words for it that I could find because I was trained in Zen meditation. So yeah, it was intimidating. Certainly didn't hold a candle to the level of intimidation I felt in joining and taking on a Zen teacher and trying to explain that to my rabbi wife. But by that point, I had already proven to myself and I think to her and to other people in our community that this practice has a place of some kind in the Jewish world. So I was able to explain not just joining the Sangha, but starting to sit one-on-one -on -one with Elliston Roshi in terms of being trained in the practice that I already do so that I can become proficient in it. And this is where I started with this whole Judaism tangent is Sensei and I talked very early on about what it would take to, for me to teach Zen, you know, overtly teach Zen instead of just pretending it isn't <laughs> Zen, you know, yeah. uh, and to teach Zen meditation in our community, that the, the Jewish yeah. community that we're a part of. And he said that if I became a disciple of his, yeah. I would be authorized to teach Zazen in, in, with his supervision and that he would be able to come and teach also and that he was interested in doing that. Sure. I mean, I think that's really a testament to how Zen is unique from a lot of other religions mm -hmm. because we do have people from all sorts of different religions. I've had Protestants come in and Quakers, atheists, lots of atheists, mm, sure. um, <laughs> you know, just in all sorts of backgrounds too. And I think that's really cool that you're able to even just ground yourself in both things at the same time yeah and finding a way to really merge them is kind of urgent feel it feels very important to me to to find a way to feel like i'm not doing two different things and it's hard only because sometimes my devotion to zen practice feels like a religious feeling to me other times it feels like something very earthly like something I'm doing just to train this body to be this way or to remember to be this way, which it naturally is if, if I can remember to be it or something like that. Other times I feel real awe and reverence for this tradition because just because of how much it helps me and other people. And also because it's universal, it's for everyone. And sometimes that can feel like an advantage over Judaism, if I'm being honest. For me, I'd rather have a practice that I can talk to anyone on anybody's terms about than one that sort of treats a group of people that I happen to be part of as distinct spiritually or religiously from other people. But of course, all groups of people are distinct. So I'm learning to sort of think of and feel Judaism as kind of just like a family mm -hmm. and this is what we do in our family and zazen is something that everyone can do so that means my family can can do it too and it's really starting to feel like it's working 
I genuinely don't know if I'm going to take Zaike Tokudo and become a disciple of senseis, but it's something we've discussed. It isn't something he's given me the green light for yet, and that's the difference with Jukai, is that the person under whom you will be a disciple has to approve your advancement to discipleship, as opposed to Jukai, which is, like you said, totally yeah, but your like, choice. You would... I mean... <laughs> No, yeah, I, I'm sure that he will He will grant me that, but it's mutual, you know? I have to decide that it's something that I want, too. This is all just a big, long answer to, so that's why I thought of taking Jukai sooner rather than later, right? So that I could begin to think of the next step as whether or not to become a disciple so that I can teach in this particular way. And in the meantime, I just want to practice more. Like, I know I need to practice more and to be more devoted to the practice in order to develop the instincts that I would need in order to do that. So taking Jukai felt like a way to bring in the support for Sangha in a formal way that I know that you've, you really eloquently put last time as central to the practice, that if you're not holding the Sangha together as a community, there's a third leg of the stool that you don't have. Right. So that's why I did this. And I'm really glad I did. You know, I feel, I feel very whole. Yeah, that's amazing. There was a lot of feeling like I maybe wasn't good enough to do Jukai, but that was kind of ignorance on my part more than it was something that anybody was saying or making me feel. I sort of waited a long time because I was also afraid of commitment. And I think I have been in a lot of my life afraid of committing to anything just because I'm a very... I'm a rapidly changing person. I've always like kind of switched what I wanted to do in life as far as a career. And it took me a long time to find any sort of spiritual practice that I wanted to be a part of. I've done a lot of searching in the past, you know, when I was in high school in early college, I was like, well, maybe I like, you know, more new age stuff, you know, like stones and herbal remedies and stuff like that. But it didn't really provide me very much guidance in the way of life besides like doing some tarot cards. And then of course you get the answers that you already want. I uh, was like, you know, I, I think I just need more guidance. And that's, I think that's what guided me to towards Zen. It's something I knew it was for me because I couldn't really get escape it. <laughs> <laughs> it was there and I wanted to go there. Yeah, same here. Try as I might, I couldn't get away. And that was new to me that I would actually want to keep going to something because I, I think that I have this sort of like, I want to be free and I want to be able to do whatever I want when I want. And I feel like if I'm tied to a community, then they're going to expect me to be there or guilt me into being there or something like that as far as, you know, some of the church experiences I've had. Uh -huh. But it wasn't like that. I did it because I wanted to and not because anybody was guiding me down that path or that I felt obligated to do it or anything like that. My dad was actually in town when I was going to do Jukai. And I have a sort of interesting relationship with my dad. My mom and my dad got divorced when I was around like seven to nine-ish. It was a long divorce. <laughs> and I didn't really see him much after that. And if I'm being honest, I didn't see him much before that either. And so, like, I would just hear from him once in a while, and he's sort of, in a lot of ways, more like an uncle than a father. But he was there, and that's interesting, you know, that your family was there supporting you. And even though I don't have the greatest relationship with my dad, it was really 
it made me really happy that somebody was supporting my new spiritual practice because it was almost like I could sort of leave behind some of the the problems that I had with Christianity and some of the guilt I felt and some of the other issues that I had with the community itself and move on and heal from that since he was there and he he thought it was pretty great. He he meditated too. I mean, I, I think he has a meditative practice. He's kind of a heretical Christian. I want to say he's sort of like a Gnostic Christian, even though those don't really exist very much anymore. Kind of find your own path. You got to look inside the book and like find, you know, your own truths. So he was kind of all for it. And my husband was there too. I think that also sort of solidified the practice for me. Like, I was officially a part of this community and working together sort of to better ourselves. And by that, like kind of doing no harm in this way that would benefit everybody by spreading the awareness that you can be peaceful and happy in your everyday life. And that was just so relaxing to me. It was very calming and everybody was so welcoming. So... I don't know exactly why I did it, though. Years had gone by and I'd I'd seen, you know, he would say, okay, like, who wants to do Jukai this year? <laughs> He's like, there's going to be very little exceptions, but you should, you know, at least have practiced for a while before you do Jukai. Uh, and I was like, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I, you know, have the criteria. And I think that's probably a reflection of myself, like I said, that I don't always feel very confident in my abilities to do something or that I am accepted amongst people or that I, I don't know, that I'm just doing well at anything. Hmm. And I, I've never really felt this way towards a community, uh, toward, especially towards a religious community, but really towards a community of, of anything that I, I felt like, you know, that they were supportive of me moving forward with the practice. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that, though. It's uncharacteristic of me, really. It's uncharacteristic of me to join a community in a very official way. I had the, the same f sort of uh, desire for freedom, as you put it, wanting to be free myself for most of my life. Not that I feel imprisoned by Zen, <laughs> you know, like th this, this doesn't feel like it conflicts with that, but joining something definitely constrains the sense of identity in some way. And the, and the freedom always had something to do with that. I think maybe for me, it, it was growing up being told I was Jewish. I was a Jew so much a and feeling inside like, hold on a second. I don't know what who I am. I don't know what I am. I don't want to know who I am. I certainly don't think you know who I am. Yeah. Let me figure it out. A lot of the wisest advice, wise in retrospect, I didn't see it as wise or even really as advice at the time. But a lot of the wisest advice I got growing up was, you'll come around. What is basically what it came down to. It was like, you'll, you'll realize what this is worth to you later and you'll be glad that you learned and practiced and and know what it feels like from the inside and that did turn out to be true that absolutely turned out to be true in terms of my relationship to judaism my jewish education was sort of well it felt coerced it felt like i was being made to get it but 
maybe it's just my nature. I was unable to, to not pay attention, <laughs> you know, so I, I absorbed it. And, and now I'm really glad I have those forms, but I was never given the option to join. You know, this is, the, this is the thing. I should have brought this up earlier. When my wife asked me to explain what Jukai was, I, I called it my Zen bar mitzvah. <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more apt a comparison it, it was because it's an initiation ceremony. It's not, it's not an adult it's not it's not a fully formed it's not the same thing as like being ordained you know it's it's yeah. taking a first step as a self-motivated practitioner the one obvious exception to that comparison the one obvious difference between a bar mitzvah and jukai is that bar mitzvahs are mandatory <laughs> right like you don't you don't get to choose to get to have a bar mitzvah and that was sort of the big draw as i as i said on the first episode that conflict between my parents wanting to make me do it and me not wanting to to do it were, was one of the one of the catalyzing religious events of my life i never got to use that freedom that we're talking about to choose a path until now yeah that's that's definitely a good point that i definitely think that i wanted to choose a path i didn't want that chosen for me because i was given a path that i didn't fit into Especially because now that I think about it, Protestant religion is there's sects that are political by nature. Mm. So I was brought up in, you know, the, the South and our churches were conservative. Mm -hmm. And it made it so that you couldn't really question what was in the Bible if that's what they believed was in the Bible. Who? Who? Like the red team, you mean? Yeah, the red team. Uh -huh. So like anybody at the church, since they were all red team, uh -huh. you couldn't really question if gay people were okay uh -huh. because they thought it said that it wasn't. And I don't know that they really even had the necessarily the scripture to back it up. Yeah. It's just that that's what they believed and they could interpret the Bible however they wanted. But it also didn't really have a good way to live an everyday life kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Zen sort of has that everyday life sort of thing that I really enjoy because I'm like, I know what to do every day. <laughs> I know what morals to live by. And it's, you know, it, it, well, it just so happened that Zen sort of aligned with my own morals. And Christianity did not. It, Christianity did not because it was, I guess, because it was red. It was red uh -huh. Christianity. Right, it was red Christianity, right. <laughs> Maybe if I had br been brought up in blue Christianity, I wouldn't have, you know, rebelled as I had. I had gone to church just to please people. I was like upset that I couldn't believe anymore. Hmm. And I would go to church anyway. My parents didn't go to church. They didn't even believe you had to go to church. Hmm. But they definitely believed that you had to believe. Mm -hmm. So I knew I didn't believe. So I was like, okay, well, I better go to church. And just always, always felt like an outsider there. Hmm. That I didn't belong at all. And... My friend Kitty at the time, she's not a Christian anymore either, but she was, and she really wanted me to go. And I was like, okay, I'll go, but that doesn't mean I'm going to start believing again. But I'm going to try to open my mind and be accepting of it and see what happens. And I couldn't, I couldn't let it in anymore because I saw some bigotry and stuff. And I wasn't even that aware of like social issues back then. Not like high school kids are today. Right, like they're yeah. so they're so much more aware than I was. Yeah, they would never stand for it. You know, people were very upset about like Muslims at the time. Yep. Because of nine eleven happening sort of recently. 
the kids were like, yeah, you know, Muslims are bad. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're just going to see a random Muslim and be like, they're bad. That's not fair. And then the youth pastor was like, that's a very smart thing to say. I'm like, that's not a smart thing to say. Like, that's just a regular thing to say. It's a basic thing to say. Yeah. (laughs) And that was like, I got so angry at that moment. And I was like, I can't, I can't be with this religion anymore. I just can't do it. (laughs) Maybe you can relate to this. What you're saying reminds me of ways that I felt as a kid in an unquestioning Jewish environment where it just felt like too much work. It felt like you had to do too many gymnastics in order to be okay in this situation, in order to fit in and be part of it and believe the things. It felt like work to believe. It felt like somebody's telling me a thing to believe, whether it's a moral thing or just a metaphysical, spiritual thing. And so I have to use my powers of imagination in order to participate in this thing by creating the truth that I believe this thing and then like holding on really tight to it and Zen practice first and then Zen teachings, but practice first, what came at it for the, from the opposite direction for me, I realized that if I simply practiced stopping creating anything, stopping holding on to anything, stopping thinking up anything, stopping imagining and just being what I automatically am, that the natural way to be was the right way to be. And I mean that in a moral sense too. It was never mysterious to me whether something was right or wrong. The only time I got screwed up about doing the right thing was when there were unnatural or external forces influencing how I would act. And, you know, whether they were social pressures of one kind or another or big scary rules like thundering down from the mountaintop of somebody else's revelation you know those were the things that got me tripped up but if i was able to be completely quiet and stop dreaming up motivations the authentic motivations would were not were already there that's why the precepts were felt so natural to me because they just described something that was already there. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to pretend anymore. I remember pretending so many times. I didn't know, it wasn't working for me. Like we uh, spoke in tongues a lot at my church and and uh, did some shaking, you know, I don't know, the like the shaking prayer kind of stuff kind of freaked me out, but I wanted to feel what they felt. I tried. I couldn't do it. So I, you know, I would, I would go up to the front of the church and be like, okay, we're in, we're in prayer and worship. So like, basically they would pray for you and you were supposed to feel the uh, force of the Lord push you backwards. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel it, but I fell backwards anyway. Whoa. (laughs) Because I wanted to be a part of it. And then there's other times where everybody's speaking in tongues and I wanted to do that too. And I remember looking over at my friend Kitty and we're like, yeah, let's just, let's just like, you know, pretend like we're speaking in tongues and that should be good enough. You know, like that, isn't that the same thing? Like, just... did you get away with it? Yeah. The thing I always want to know is how many people are like, whether 10% of people in the room are doing that, or whether 90% of the people in the room are doing that. I have no idea. I, I feel like some of them actually believe it. I don't, 
I, I can't imagine they felt like me and could continue to do that. Yeah. But but don't you think that for some people, and maybe it's just people who aren't like us, who want our own freedom spiritually, haven't you met people? I certainly have met people for whom the social pressure to do the thing might as well be God's voice making them do it as oh. far as how much it matters that you do wow. it. Wow. Yeah, I think so. I think so. There was a situation like that where I felt like I kind of wanted to have like a vision mm. uh, because that was also a part of my religious practice. So yeah. I was in church and I like swore that I saw like God's hand come up and touch one of the children. I just wanted, you know, because I had heard people do that before, uh-huh. you know, where they would like go and tell them and they would announce it in front of the church. Like it was so I didn't tell anybody, but I was like, yes, I finally I saw the vision Wow. I, <laughs> I, um, uh, anyways, but, but Zen's not like that at all. I didn't feel like I had to force myself to feel these things that, I mean, you really just sitting there and being with yourself, and that's good enough. Householders is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at ASZC.org. Our Sangha depends on your support. You can donate by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gashaw.